Hey there, today's episode is brought to you by Chargebee and Vitaly. Chargebee just launched their 2024 State of the Subscriptions and Revenue Growth Report, packed with retention insights and strategies from over 300 of the fastest growing subscription businesses. You can grab a copy of the report today by visiting chargebee.com forward slash churnfm. That's C-H-A-R-G-E-B-E-E dot C-O-M forward slash C-H-U-R-N-F-M. And Vitaly is bringing in a new era for customer success productivity with their all-in-one customer success platform. Vitaly gives you unmatched visibility into your company's health and success. And now you can measure operational strategies on customer outcomes at scale with goals directly in Vitaly. They're also currently giving away a free pair of AirPods to all ChurnFM listeners when you take a qualified demo with them. So if you're in the market for a CS platform, visit vitaly.io forward slash churnfm today to schedule your demo and get your airpods that's v-i-t-a-l-l-y dot i-o forward slash c-h-u-r-n-f-m if you decide to check either of them out please make sure to use the links quoted as it allows them to measure the roi of this campaign and helps me retain them as our sponsors to continue producing churnfm as an independent creator with that being said let's jump to today's episode We've been like building the core infrastructure and just getting the engineering building blocks in place. And we're now kind of shifting towards this mentality where we work backwards from the user experience constantly. Every function we add, everything we do is directly answering the question, how is this improving the user experience? This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Very exciting to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Dan is the CEO and founder of Ivy, bringing all the best-in-class AI frameworks, infrastructure, and hardware directly to you in one line of code. So to get started, maybe it would be best if you could give us an overview of Ivy and perhaps what motivated you to start the company. Sure. I mean, that was the perfect overview to us. That was the perfect kind of uh, pitch for what Ivy's doing in a few sentences already. Yeah, in terms of motivation, basically, so during my PhD, I was increasingly frustrated with the fragmented AI stack. So in the lab I was in, where I was researching robotics and 3D vision, we had people who would often go and do internships uh, at various different places. We had some that would go to OpenAI or DeepMind or... Um, Meta or Microsoft or Boston Dynamics or NVIDIA. In fact, I feel as though everybody went somewhere different. I'm not sure why, but that's kind of what happened. And what would happen is everybody would come back and, and people using different frameworks, whether it be, you know, back then TensorFlow, PyTorch, Chainer, um, MXNet, Cafe, etc. But not only that, people were using different compiler infrastructure and different hardware, um, with it being, you know, edge devices and so on. This this was really frustrating. It was really hard to collaborate, really hard for new PhD students. And I 
got this sense that that nobody was taking this problem really seriously in the field. So there was all these like, you know, amazing research happening, but these fundamental frictions that made it really hard to, you know, to collaborate across borders and, and across labs and across different um, companies and so on. So basically I ended up, I started down that rabbit hole trying to unify all of the stack. And I thought I'd spend a few weeks doing it and like, you know, make a few tools to make it easier to research and get back to my research. But I never did. I've never emerged from that deep rabbit hole since and very happy for that to be the case. And to elaborate on what Ivy does. So that, that, that's the motivation that, that kind of started me off on, on this journey. In terms of what Ivy does, I think there's, there's two main, I mean, there's three things it can do. First of all, it can be a AI framework. So you can use it like PyTorch, the benefit being, or, or anything else, the benefit being it then serves lots of backends and works across hardware. But I think, I think the main two immediate benefits of Ivy that mean you don't need to write any new code. This is a long answer, but <laughs> the main two benefits that mean you don't need to write any new code is that you can use any existing libraries or models from another framework and bring them into your existing project. So you don't need to write lots of new stuff. You're using a TensorFlow project. You would like to use this library written for PyTorch and you can't use it today. Now with Ivy, with a one line of code, you can bring that library in from another framework and end-to-end train it in your project. So one line of code, things become very easy to develop and build and research across the boundaries of these different tools. That's the first benefit. Much more for kind of builders and researchers. Now the second benefit that I think is perhaps more universal, particularly as we're moving into LLMs and and in a world where there's AI deployment on huge scales all over the place. The second benefit is that Ivy enables you to automatically optimize your pre-existing model and to get um, better runtime performance. So we can, because we connect to everything so exhaustively, it means that you take your framework, which doesn't connect to all of the compiler technology. It doesn't connect to all of the new hardware vendors immediately. So it only connects to some of them, which means that you're limited when it comes to how efficient you can run your model. Because we connect everything to everything else, when you come to us with, or, or when you install Ivy, you have your model that's running at a certain speed. With one line of code, we can guarantee, or you know, almost guarantee, in every case, we can make it faster for you. Maybe it's two, three, maybe 10 times faster just by unlocking all of this technology that you're not immediately having access to. So basically, like, you know, develop more quickly and easily, run more efficiently and cheaply, and do all of this with one line of code is really what Ivy's, Ivy's unlocking, um, as you very eloquently put at the beginning as well. Very nice. And, and interesting how sort of that came out of a, a problem you were seeing as well with between students going off to different companies, everybody working with their own different frameworks, and then not effectively being able to collaborate uh, across the board. The thing that caught my eye and the reason why I wanted to reach out today actually was, I think in a relatively short space of time, Ivy has uh, developed and become a really strong community. And just looking at the stats today, like there's over 12,500 GitHub stars. It's 1.2K in the open source contributors. There's over 5,000 forks uh, of Ivy and you have uh, members in Discord over 15,000 now. I think. One of the things when, it, when we think about trend and retention and uh, in terms of business, one of the like a really, really strong case you can make and where you can increase retention is by having a really, really strong community where people are with you from the ground up and they help you build and facilitate uh, the growth of the organization. And it's very early on in your days as a company, but obviously I, I think I can see like the steps and the process and the game plan here. And this is what I wanted to unpack today is the idea, like build a community open source uh, the frameworks and the technology. And then on top of that, 
build a business uh, that's for those people that don't want to have to figure around and fiddle with uh, open source tech and have a ready-made enterprise uh, good-to-go service. Did it start out like this? Was it intentional? Like uh, maybe start from like early, early days. I think if, I mean, let's say hypothetically that having that community helps with any potential, you know, churn of the company that emerges from this, then that's a happy byproduct, but it certainly wasn't and isn't the main, you know, the main purpose of the community. And even the community itself is a byproduct of the open source project. I think they're all things that are, that kind of have emerged, not necessarily with total intent, but, but obviously very happy for, for it to have emerged that way. So, so I guess starting from the beginning, basically because of the nature of the Ivy project, it, it needs to be open source pretty much. And it was open source long before there was ever a company when it was myself doing this kind of, you know, committing away, uh, on my own <laughs> for a year or so in the early history of the project. Uh, it, it was just myself and it was all open source and it was the only way that it made sense because it's a framework like TensorFlow is open source, PyTorch is open source. All of this stuff is open source. If I want AI researchers to be able to use this, then it just needs to be open source. So that was never even a question. Now, I think what Ivy particularly benefits from, I mean, it suffers from and benefits from kind of, in, well, I don't think it suffers from it actually, but but it, it just happens to be a design feature of Ivy that it is incredibly modular and it's incredibly parallelizable. There are not many projects out there. I mean, I can't really think of any others that quite tick this box in the same way. I mean, obviously everything's on a scale, but but with Ivy, there are literally thousands of independent functions, all of which are basically the same kind of process repeated. So it's like what I did at the very beginning, winding right back to early 2022, which is when the company started, is I made quite a lot of exhaustive YouTube series that explained how to contribute. And, and I went through and did like, you know, maybe six or seven functions in the front end and explained the process and just did a screen recording and showed how it works, added these to the YouTube and et cetera. And then basically it's the same thing, but you know, do it a thousand times more and we've made huge progress and literally a thousand. That's not just me being exaggerating, literally a thousand times more or so. And then we start to make big progress on kind of getting the engineering workload done. So there's not many. Yeah. So basically we benefit because there is lots of like low hanging fruit to pick up as a contributor. And then that's how we go from one contributor to, you know, 1200 contributors in the space of, you know, just over a year or so is, is because of that. The second thing is that what we did, because I, I'm a believer that it, it's very good for people before they join to have a bit of work experience on the actual job. So everybody that applies, and we've now had over 35,000 applicants to our roles since starting. So long answer. Let me just wind back. So another thing that, that enabled us to do this is that we, so I take the view that exceptional engineers or, you know, pretty universally, pretty universally spread across the across the globe and pretty much decoupled from, you know, the, the prestige of universities and so on. I think there's amazing engineers because you can learn online. So, you know, there's, a, so there's engineers everywhere. So we basically reached out to a ton of computer science departments all over the world in every country. We, we put our, job ads out on all kinds of job boards in all countries. And, and we just got this huge influx of applicants all over. And then we have this process where if you want to progress to the next stage with interviews and video assessments and stuff, then you need to get a pull request accepted on the repository. And that's easy for us to do because as I said, there's like a ton of open tasks. So that also helped to fuel the contributor 
you know, the wave of initial contributors because people were doing so as part of their applications. And now we get contributors coming to the Discord, stumbling across it and contributing, you know, completely decoupled from applications. But that helped to get the ball rolling, I think, early on when it was me and a Discord server with one person, me, and, and you know, everything was just was just one person. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to get the inertia. And I think that kind of helped get the ball rolling. And and then obviously just to say, long answer, and, and what we now do obviously is every every engineer on the team has equal responsibility to review these pull requests. So I wouldn't be able to review uh, 1,200 pull requests in a year, but we have engineers every day, obviously, at a rate of several a day getting new PRs merged, um, basically. And that's helped, I think. Super interesting. Just to recap as well a little bit. So you started out uh, in the early days, open sourced the, the technology, like really providing something valuable to the community from that point on. You... Yeah. We're sort of figuring out, okay, like, how do we grow this uh, community now? How do we get our value? And one of the first things you did was really developer uh, education and enablement, like really focusing on the developer experience and educating how they can actually contribute to the platform. Uh, a lot of times we see obviously like docs being a natural path, but you went a step further, I think, and actually yeah. started creating content around this for YouTube and guides and how to's. I think I love that. And then. In terms of growing the contributor side, like you might even think of it as a little bit of a hack, but it's, I think it's an awesome way to like, A, as you said, find the best talents and, uh, be able to hire effectively, but then also show them and show all these engineers the power of what you're building through that platform. Because yeah, at the early stages, like trying to get a little bit of momentum, I think what you also really need to find out is like, what is that value you're really delivering to those uh, users and to those individuals and, find that fascinating um yeah yeah i think another thing it does quickly does just to quickly elaborate on that a tiny bit is is i think another benefit is that yeah like it, i guess it's a bit of a filter because it it might be the case that some people feel as though it's below them to make a pr or something and, and, and there's certainly a lot of great candidates that apply that, that that don't follow through with that but but i i think it kind of puts everyone on the same level. Everyone's just going to make a PR, you know, even if you think it's too easy, you know, just, just make the PR. If you, if it's a challenge, then maybe it's a good experience for you to catch up with others who are applying and kind of get, get, you know, also it's a bit of an educational thing because our, our team very much help new contributors and, you know, explain it along the way in the PR comment list and everything. So it's also a bit of an onboarding process, I suppose, for people that are a bit further. But, but one thing is that it's not assessed because each PR is different. So we only treat it as like an entry barrier, let's say. And once you've got past it, all applicants are treated equally again because, you know, you might get a really easy function, you might get a hard function. We acknowledge that and, and you know, therefore we don't want to kind of start trying to compare apples and oranges. Um, but yeah, but anyway, but I, I think this has been a big help, yeah. Absolutely. Super interesting. So then as a platform, like uh, you, you've grown quite a large uh, audience now and quite a big community. First stage getting up developer content, second stage, like filling up uh, those contributors. Where are you at now today? Like, how are you working with your community? How is it uh, growing? And uh, what are some of the key areas you're looking to help them with at the moment? Yeah, good question. So um, basically, uh, well, uh, speaking, what should be only a few weeks before our first real official launch. So we're hoping to move away from everything being developer focused, we've basically been building out the core infrastructure. I mean, for the last 18 months, it's still not totally, it, it, well, it is, a, it is in a usable state and, and we do have users, but there's, there's a few kind of 
just little things left, which then unlock a, a lot of value once we've got these like final things ironed out. So we're, we're still effectively in some sense pre-release, which I also think is, which also gives me reassurance that, that we're building something that's useful or at least has captured people's mind share because we have still a lot of engagement, a lot of stars, a lot of contributors and, 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 and big community, even though there's not a product that everybody's using on mass. So the next stage is to get people using this. I mean, put simply, uh, and the next stage is to get the launch out and to, to verify with, with concrete demos what, what Ivy unlocks. We at the moment have this early pilot access where we've had, I think getting towards a thousand signups and people using the pilot, but we haven't really even, I mean, I'm kind of doing it now, but we haven't really announced it. Like we just kind of added it onto the website and just thought we'd see who clicks it. But really we, we haven't properly got it ready, like to make it fully polished. And now we're going to launch that properly. And I would imagine get you know, several thousand signups and, and actually then start to really make sure that the user experience is, is as good as it can be and work backwards from that. So I think we've been like building the core infrastructure and just getting the engineering building blocks in place. And we're now kind of shifting towards this mentality where we work backwards from the user experience constantly. Every function we add, everything we do is directly answering the question, how is this improving the user experience right now and, and, and so on. So I think that's, that's basically it kind of, you know, leave, developer building phase and, and make everything just a bit more kind of user oriented and, and, and you get this out there in lots of hands and, and respond quickly to questions and, and so on. That's interesting. Sort of, uh, the shift in terms of who the focus is and who the, the customer, if you want to call them in inverted commas, uh, becomes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I also want to quickly say that we're not going to on that cut off <laughs> the developer side. Yeah, of the yeah. We have all the developer facing channels. We're going to open new channels. And I wouldn't expect it to be yeah. like, Hey, thanks very much. See you later. Sort of thing. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and then from that perspective, like in the, the early days, you must have received a ton of feedback, obviously from developers uh, themselves, which helped iterate the platform and uh, drive the direction. I'm interested in, in this concept then as well, because obviously on one end, you have this strong developer community that's actually building the platform alongside you, that's providing great feedback continuously. And you mentioned now that you're shifting to this phase now where you're actually going to launch the, the product at some point publicly and you anticipate yeah. users to start using the platform within their workflows, within their production environments. And this becomes a slightly different audience as well. Like, Obviously, there's quite a lot of overlap, but there's also a contradiction in that. And I'm interested now, like, how is the team viewing this challenge in terms of gathering feedback and iterating on the product and understanding what that roadmap needs to look like? Because I'm, I'm could imagine there's some sort of tension as well between what the community yeah. wants and what's actually going to be best for users at the end of the day. Great question. But the first thing is that actually we continue to have back and forth conversations with our community. If people are using it, we, you know, every now and reach out and say, hey, We'd love to hear your thoughts on Ivy. If you have time to hop on a call or want to explain, you know, your thoughts on this, we'd love to hear it. We've now had, I think, seven and a half thousand, because again, not only does our amazing engineering team have unit, like distributed responsibilities on reviewing pull requests, everybody also has some recurring engagement with the community because I think it helps for us to all collectively have a refined intuition on what people are thinking, what people want, what their impressions are. And for that not to all just be kind of funneled through one person, but actually all of us kind of have an ongoing sense of that. So we keep our finger on the pulse of the kind of ongoing sentiment, let's say, to the extent that we can. What also obviously helps a lot is that I and our, I mean, kind of, I guess, sales team, I don't, I don't think it's really sales because we're too early for that, but, but we're talking to lots of companies, let's say, and kind of hearing their thoughts and building some, you know, early, early proof concepts and things like this. And, and that obviously constantly feeds into 
our intuition about what people care about. And I think there's not that much misalignment between the internal team, at least. People on our team are not, you know, interested in building an, an academic project because it's interesting that everyone's aligned that we want to make this useful. Like this is the most exciting if it's useful, obviously, because you want to be building something that you know when you make your commit, then, you know, the next day there's a thousand people benefiting from it directly and, and everything. So we're all, we're all very much aligned to that. And, and I think, so I might be going off on a bit of a tangent here, but one thing just to actually say, what this has led us to, or what this has made me realize through having these ongoing conversations, remaining open. This is also just a quick advice to anybody building a company, which is obvious advice, but of course you need to stay open-minded. You might have an initial idea for the way things will go, but the field, particularly a field like AI, changes incredibly rapidly and you need to go with the flow and adapt. And, and it will definitely be different every year a bit than what you thought before. And that's that's kind of almost essential for you to have any chance of surviving, I think, because because of how quickly things move. And at least in our case, we were always focused on the frameworks and the infrastructure and the hardware, but but we were perhaps earlier more focused on developer tools and enabling researchers especially. I mean, I come from a research background. You obviously often build for yourself. Researchers especially to be able to develop and create and experiment across these boundaries. But actually, it's become increasingly apparent that deployment is a huge pain because people are deploying very inefficiently on scale and therefore we recently opened up this whole new division let's say in what we're building this whole new area on deployment where we have i mean i won't go into the details but we have all these deployment backends which are the c++ compiler infrastructure backends where we we want to make iv really really fast on on all hardware and it was something that wasn't necessarily the focus even three months ago and that's come from community conversations and and sales calls and everything. Uh, but, but but I would say you the, the, you mentioned this kind of maybe slight difference between what the community wants and what the users want and everything. I think there's 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 more alignment than than I would have necessarily thought cuz we're building something to, for lots of people building it. For, it's probably true that researchers and students and and the kind of people that are most interested in IV in the community now might be a bit more on the building side because they've kind of come on board with the old GitHub and the old messaging that was like, you know, unify the frameworks. So they might have this problem when they're doing research. And there's maybe, you know, maybe on the this, the enterprise side, it's a bit more deployment focused. So there might be a bit of a disconnect. But what I would say is that actually, thankfully for us, it all builds on the same stack. So, so I think even though there's a bit of a different pull on addressing these two con- problems and kind of molding Ivy to fix them, there's not that much. Actually, it, it's a pretty fundamental piece of technology i think and it kind of becomes a case of messaging and what demos you you highlight rather than like hugely changing what we're building in both cases for sure but i think it's also then the other sort of what features matter to the different types of audiences and when you're working more in an enterprise environment like security and privacy and user management and all these things start to become more of requests which take away from like the core concept and the core uh, offering of the product so it's always a sort of like balance between when and why yeah uh, to do these things no exactly and 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 we end up being spread a bit thin trying to cover them all but i guess i guess that's just part of been doing a startup i guess <laughs> part of a startup yeah so i'm also interested then like uh, this model obviously starting out with an open source project building and growing the community and then building a business on top uh, i mean it's been uh, done quite a few different times and extremely successfully. So like the likes of Automatic come to mind, Red Hat, GitLab, uh, MongoDB, all of these companies started out as open source uh, projects and then went on and built on businesses off the back of that. 
what does that look like for you now today? So you sort of got step one and you've got some good momentum building there. You're obviously going to continue to build and uh, develop that community and offer uh, services uh, for them. You're going to launch the product to your users. Like, how are you thinking about the business yeah. side of things now? So how are you going to turn this community that you've developed and built now into, into business? So I think the first thing is that we're not, particularly with the community, we're not thinking that we want to turn, well, the, the mall into customers or something, for example. I think really the benefit, at least in my mind, the benefit of having a community, particularly when it's researchers and academics. So Ivy will remain totally free to use for all non-commercial reasons, actually. Parts of it are gated and you need to create an account and get a dashboard for a few of the more kind of enterprise focused features. But basically, I think the value there comes from in terms of how this actually benefits your chances of making enterprise sales and actually getting the customers that are also essential alongside the open source stuff that you're building. I think developer mindshare is huge. There's several companies where the revenue has lagged, let's say, but but what has been at the forefront is just buy-in. Like this is the standard. I mean, it's like Hugging Face as an example, not necessarily kind of jaw-dropping revenue, I don't think, but it doesn't matter. Like that comes and what, what really matters is Everyone knows if you have a state-of-the-art model, it's in Hugging Face and and everybody adds their models there. And this kind of has huge, huge value that kind of unlocks itself over time. So I would say that we don't kind of think right now, how can we quickly turn all of these people that love Ivy into how do we make them more customers? We think, well, maybe some of them are doing research, maybe there's some of them doing PhDs. One day they're going to be working in a company and if they want to keep using Ivy and if they have the mindshare that this is the standard and this is what this is the tool for the job and we manage to cement ourselves into that place in people's minds then you know when when the time comes whether it be in one year or three years or you know whatever long that then the thinking is that it, it, it then pays off at that point and of course in parallel to that we are talking with enterprises who already you know might be interested in using this in an enterprise setting so yeah i i think yeah i mean that's kind of a half answer but basically it's kind of like what we first of all want to solve before we start rushing into any of this is like, is this useful? If people have this for free, are they going to keep using it? And like, let's first of all get that solved in the hobbyist stuff. And then obviously kind of we can build from there is the thinking of it. Also, what I would just quickly say is I say for free. Sorry, uh, there's a bit of a delay as well. And then we keep talking over each other a bit. The thing I was just going to quickly say is that, that it is for free, but not everything in Ivy is totally open source, actually. So the ability to convert between frameworks and the ability to make your code deploy really efficiently is free for all non-commercial uh, stuff, but, but it does just require an account, basically. Um, yeah. I think that's also like going, circling back to the beginning where you said you're not sure how the community uh, like leads to churn and or increases retention at the yeah. end of it. I think you've alluded to a couple of different things now. Like one is, first of all, just adoption and uh, activation and it becomes a really, really strong growth channel. So like if you build up a successful community, you become the standard. Uh, you first of all, like create this incredible, uh, growth loop whereby new students are being educated. They're coming in, they get familiar with your tool or service. They move to a new company. Uh, yeah. they recommend Ivy as the, the tool of choice. Uh, and it just becomes a sort of self-fulfilling, um, prophecy in a way. And ultimately then you become really, really sticky because I think. A product like this as well, it is like, it's not one of the first things you're going to want to take out because if it becomes a core component of your yeah. stack and the way you work and operate, it becomes very, very difficult as well to come out. So I think you already have that like, um, like strong point of retention once it's in. Uh, and yeah. building the community is that way to get it in now. And it's that way to sort of foster the community, keep it as a standard. So yeah, I think it's all yeah. very, very exciting. 
uh, what you're building there and uh, how it's growing. Yeah, fingers so crossed it plans, comes off as you say. Um, as you say, yeah. And you're not at the moment. So obviously, like you don't want to convert all of the community. You still want to have this really good open source freemium component to the business because it's what spreads the word of mouth, yeah. encouraging new users. Uh, there's a lot of other great companies as well, I think, uh, that have taken this approach specifically with students as well. So in, yeah. the, in the research space, like a couple of good companies come to mind. Yeah, and it, it was actually a good decision whether we do it for all for all students or, or hobbyists as well. And and in my mind, it made me kind of think about even some of the people that have applied to us. Not not all people who are learning about software engineering are necessarily officially students. There's a lot of people self-educating. There's a lot of people doing some other job, but just kind of in their spare time trying to change career path. And it felt like blocking them off from the kind of freemium felt a bit unfair. Um, so, so we've, we've taken an approach that means that people in big enterprises can just, you know, log in with their Gmail account and do whatever they want to some extent. But then if you really want the fully on-prem, you know, dedicated engineer, all the proper security stuff that an enterprise needs, of course, this doesn't come with the freemium. So our thinking is even if anybody can, you know, sign up with their Gmail and get a lot of value, we still have a hook that means enterprises and also a license. I mean, the license will then mean that it, it can't be done for commercial reasons and stuff. So that, that's the thinking at least. We want to, we want to not put up too many guardrails. I just want to give a quick reminder that our sponsors of this episode today are Vitaly and Chargebee. Vitaly are giving away a free pair of AirPods to all qualified demos. So if you're in the market for a new CS platform, make sure to visit vitaly.io forward slash churnfm today. You can also grab a copy of the latest state of the subscription and revenue growth report by visiting chargebee.com forward slash churnfm and let them both know that I sent you. Now back to today's episode. Sounds good. Everything moving, looking like it's going in your direction. What's keeping you up at night? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I guess, like... What's really keeping you I up guess at night? Everything... <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of it. I guess if everything coalesces around one piece of tech, then what we're doing becomes a little bit less useful, perhaps. I mean, again, I'm interpreting that about very company specific. There's all kinds of things that keep me up at night <laughs> about the state of the world, but about Ivy, let's say. <laughs> then I would say if everything was to completely center around NVIDIA, for example, or if everything was to center around I don't know, like one particular compiler tech, let's say Triton, for example, or XLA or something, then maybe Ivy becomes less useful. Now, I think we've been able to shift and provide value as the field evolves. So I'm not too worried about that. And also, I don't see any signs that the compiler infrastructure world or the hardware landscape is becoming super monolithic. And I actually think the GPU shortage, as one example, is an indicator that we need to be able to use long tail technology to get this working and not least CPUs. Actually, there's amazing research, not even particularly new research, but there's research that shows that com combining things like uh, quantization and pruning and even tensorization and so on, lots of methods to create sparse networks, enable them to be run in this like depth first approach where you don't do it layer by layer, but you can actually kind of explore deep kind of um, neuron paths, basically asynchronously, and which is really well suited for CPU architecture. So, so I, I think there's going to always be a need to get all of this stuff working on like a, a, a shortage of hardware. And that in itself also means that you want your stuff to work across hardware. So you're not locked in to one vendor that might run out or one cloud that might suddenly stop having access and so on. So 
I mean, yeah, but, 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 but anyway, I'm kind of turning that into a positive yeah. from, from the question. I, th- I think, yeah, we, we benefit when there's fragmentation at all layers of the stack. And obviously, if that diminishes, then we need to kind of make sure we're providing value in, in such a scenario. Yeah. And to summarize some of your gardening uh, metaphors there as well, like uh, energy, like what, what you're sort of seeing at the moment is your concern is if everybody gravitates to a single hardware provider or a single compiler. Uh, this sort of makes the, yeah. the offering redundant, but that's obviously not going to happen because like we see in the market today, there's a big shortage. There's yeah. improvements being done every day on ways you can optimize these models to work better on hardware. And there's different ways of doing that as well. And really like that's not going to stop anytime soon. And I think it's evidence as well. Like if you've seen the open source community, if you see in different way, like programming languages have evolved, like there was probably always a time at some yeah. concern when it was like, oh, what if everything becomes Python or what if everything becomes JavaScript or C++? And there's probably always these tensions and arguments, but ultimately it's the communities like yours, like others that are growing and developing that are going to fight to keep them alive. No, it makes sense. And also, I think one thing I would say as well, even in that world where there is more coalescing than we might imagine, even then Ivy provides, I mean, a lot of value because there's this, there's companies we're talking with that are using, I mean, there's companies we're talking with that are using Pandas and Scikit-Learn or even Julia and MATLAB and so on. And there's always going to be, there's always going to be a long tail where it's really valuable for them to keep up with and integrate with the, all the cutting edge stuff. And even like five or 10% of the AI market, if we're the only tool that bring, keeps them on board, that's a big market to go after still. And um, so we, even in that world, it's not kind of existential, I don't think, but, but this is something that might, you know, could diminish things a bit. But again, as you say, I don't see any signals of that really, really being the case. Yeah. I think as well, you mentioned like a lot of different names of t- technologies and frameworks and things now. And I think one of the things that always struck me was like, how bad engineers are at naming things. Like you can definitely tell that a marker yeah. wasn't involved in like naming half of the frameworks and stacks out there. Uh, I do have a like Ivy and I like it's all even more unify.ai. Like unify itself, it makes like so much sense. It's easy to remember and it's a great domain. So uh, good on you for, get, for getting that right. Last question then, uh, as we wrap up today, like maybe what's the thing that's exciting you most about the future and uh, the direction that you're taking today? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, good question. I think what, what excites me most is a world where we really achieve what we've set out to because, because we're not there yet quite where we're, we're getting closer and it won't be too much longer, but, but it's not, you know, all, all of the demos that we have in our mind, you know, some of them are, are, are still out there in our imaginations. And, and I think the, the day where you can really take any code, it can be NumPy code written 10 years ago. It can be TensorFlow one code from some state of your paper or some like, you know, proper canonical piece of work that, that there's the original implementation there from this, you know, super famous paper. You can just pluck these things off and run them on the latest hardware in your latest experiments pipelines and everything just becomes commodity. Like, uh, cause the, even today, like researchers today who are comparing to, you know, um, these, these canonical pieces of work have all these re-implementation efforts. And also there's all these huge inefficiencies. The day that you can take this model from this framework and run it on your iPhone straight away or run it on your, whatever kind of edge device or, or alarm clock or something kind of crazy where, where, where all of these things are interconnected. I think, I think the reason it excites me is, is because obviously it means it's, it means the success of IV, but it just means a huge loss. It just means a huge efficiency boost, both in terms of energy consumption, which obviously has impacts for the environment, but also just in terms of developer hours and in terms of, you know, companies becoming more, more efficient and so on. So I think about what we're doing, if we get it right, then the whole AI developer experience can become just so much more seamless, 
so much less painful. And people, which all AI infra companies are striving to in one way or another, but people can, again, have another tool that enables them to focus on the maths, focus on the core innovation and technology, and just kind of stop worrying about everything else. And like that percentage of time worrying about the details of the implementation and so on is particularly if you're doing like theoretical contributions, it's just a waste of time. It's just like painful and error prone, less time being creative and innovative and more time, you know, painstakingly copying and pasting this network over to this one line by line or something like this. So I think the, the, the innovation unlock and what that means for the AI field, the energy consumption savings and cost savings that enables are all. And I think just, just to wind that up, I think just in general, I've always been excited about just building one thing that's quite fundamental. I was so excited when I got my like first PR merged into TensorFlow. For example, I've always been really excited when I find a big open source project and even just make a tiny change that makes things more efficient. I was like, wow, that's now like thousands of people that are going to benefit from my little bit of C++ or something. And it's kind of that same feeling, but, but taken, you know, further because if, if this does get widely used and we're really helping the field, then, you know, even if we're not at, at the applied level, like it's just like really exciting. Yeah. And also just to quickly round that up with one that's not just self-focused, not, not just inward focused in terms of the field of AI. The thing I'm very excited about as well is, um, is actually, well, medicine and, and how RL can unlock really amazing things such as AlphaFold and everything. I think that's actually more exciting than the chatbot wave potentially. And also I know that maybe deep mind in recent months have kind of lost the limelight a little bit with the whole LLM boom. But I think that RL work they're doing has a huge amount of implications for, you know, unlocking new algorithms and mathematics and computer science. And I think that's going to take us down a path where AI compilers can be end-to-end driven. And if you can learn to compile code in a way that is like hard to understand and, and can combine, you know, assembly logic and memory writing in, in a non-human understandable way that's like super, super efficient taking these shortcuts. I also think that's really exciting. So just to kind of put a few points on what excites me about the field, this is what I would say um, as well. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, it sounds like an exciting future, Dan. I think uh, for the listeners, I might need to put together a glossary for today's episode, just for some terms and terminology <laughs> you may not be familiar with. But, sure. <laughs> uh, it, I, it I can really help you that if, uh, you, if you want. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, it was great having you on the show today and sounds like you're off to an exciting future. Wish you best of luck now going forward. And yeah, thanks again for joining. Fingers crossed. Likewise, thanks for having me, Andrew. Real, real pleasure to be here. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week. And with that, I just want to say a big thanks again to Vitaly and Chargebee for sponsoring this episode. If you do decide to check them out at vitaly.io forward slash churnfm and chargebee.com forward slash churnfm, please make sure to let them know I sent you because tracking podcast advertising is traditionally very difficult And I want to make sure we deliver value to them both so that we can retain them as our sponsors. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again next week.